Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Can I say something that I think is bullshit? Don't fool agent. Yes, we sell out. He also told me he was on acid. Yeah, you better wash that mic off. I was gonna fill it up with my own urine. Alcoholica. And I talked about digging a hole in a fucking dirt, smoking hash through the ground. Oh, I don't know. There's all kinds of shit. And shower filled with women. Sit your ass down, Lars. Shoot a pair of women's legs walking down the street. Eight women washing you down at once, you know. Come up here, Lars. Points to me. <laughs> And his skin is bubbling like on the Toxic Avenger. Boyfriends and dads looking for me. Singing along, fucking along, doing the something to fuck along. Here we go! This is Phil Toll, and you're listening to Pan Podcast for All. on podcast for all i'm shane obershaw and i'm jeff winslow jeff would you agree it's been too long since we've had a ultra extra special guest like extra fucking new like on the next record now you're talking james jr right no it's been a long time since we've had you know especially you know on all our guests we want you to know you are special but it has been a while since we've had that extra special guest and i'm really really excited for tonight's episode everyone's special on podcast for all you the fan come on the show drive the discussion talk as little or as a lot of metallica as you want the chloe trujillos the dot coils phil toll who, who who am I forgetting here? Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho. We had Kyle Shutt. President of the United States. Oh, wait. He hasn't returned our calls yet. Yeah, well, it depends on which president. That's true. Good point. We'll see if we can. No, I'd take, uh, no I, I think I, I I probably would take any president. Let's face it. If you can have the president on your podcast, you're probably going to talk. You think the Secret Service screens your Riverside.fm video conference call? When we're talking to, to POTUS? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Hello, Mr. Potus. What is your song that should not be? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Someday. Uh, Someday, dude. Someday. Might not get James or Lars, but we're getting Potus on. Write that down. (laughs) We'll get Potus, yeah. (laughs) When are you guys getting Lars? We've got the president. Oh, I'm still bummed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Dude, I know you're a little younger than I am, but how many rock magazines did you have growing up or do you still have in your possession today uh to be honest most of my uh you know most of my magazines are probably still at my parents house but you know i had i had all sorts of of music magazines you know i obviously had the hit parader the rip magazine the you know metal hammer obviously all the guitar magazines rolling Mm -hmm. stone like you know it was definitely something that was a staple 
growing up, getting the posters out of Hit Parader, hanging mm-hmm. them on the walls. If you go down in my parents' basement, you'll still see some of the Hit Parader posters and pictures that I ripped out from the magazines and put up on the wall. I think I actually have one of Lars from the O. 04 St. Anger era, and he's got the big old, like, you know, power goatee going on. Oh, the Eminem haircut he was rocking for a bit. I wasn't, no, I actually wasn't the Eminem haircut. It wasn't like the, the short, blonde, slim shady. It was, okay. It was, yeah, it was, he had like that goatee just on the bottom and, you know, just regular short hair. But yeah, it was St. Anger era because it's the, the green drum kit. I used to drive to Barnes and Noble and spend a couple hours every couple weeks rating the music magazines, reading a few, and anything that had Metallica on it, let's be honest, I bought it. I still have all of them to this day. And I've you still got all you- four or five times, and I still have them. Still got the old Rip magazines? Dude, the Rips, Hit Parader, Circus, anything that oh, the boys circus, were yes. on. Anything that the boys were on, I had. And obviously, you know, I can only play about three songs on guitar, but any guitar... Any guitar world, any guitar player, some old Kerrangs with Lars, had them all, still have them. And it was kind of fun today before we talked to our special guest, going back to these and actually having a physical copy in your hand going through this shit. You can't beat this stuff. Having the physical thing in your hand still beats your iPhone. My two cents. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, and especially considering, you know, our extra special guest tonight has such a you know, significant role when it comes to some of these old rock magazines. I mean, man, the things that he saw, the things he heard, the things he wrote about, I can only imagine. Just think about the things that he did see and he wrote about or wrote about and the things that he didn't. Like those are the things we really want to dive in deep with is like, all right, tell us what didn't you write about? <laughs> what non disclosure thing have you signed that you haven't told a soul yet? <laughs> Right, exactly. How many of these things can you talk about without getting sued? No, I'm just kidding. I think of Mr. Lawn Friends history, crew, Jovi, Axel, mm. Metallica. Talk about really a decade of decadence there when you're talking about those four or five acts in their prime as well. He's been around forever. He's seen an incredible, you know, spectacles. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, just and he saw it. For, he saw it from the beginning too. He saw it when it was in that fundamental kind of groundbreaking stage into what it's become. I mean, look at forty years later, and Metallica is still probably the most relevant metal band in the world. And he also did some work for Larry Flint. When you, when you're working for Mister Flint, rest in peace. You you've done something right. He went from working for Larry to the music industry. That's that's a hell of a story right there. His story alone, just with, I don't know if you ever saw The People versus Larry Flint with Woody Harrelson and uh, I think Courtney Love, right? Wasn't she, she was the girlfriend that was Larry Flint's girlfriend, Courtney Love was, I'm pretty sure in that movie. You know, that that life, especially at that time, because it was such a taboo industry to be in. True. I mean, and we think about it and like, we see what Metallica went through, we see what Motley Crue and, you know, Van Halen, David Lee Roth, you know, and the blow and all these drugs and the women and all that stuff. And that's an an incredible, crazy lifestyle. But now you think about, you know, the 70s, Larry Flint, you know, what they considered, you know, porn. This stuff was hardcore, you know, that's sure. I man, words can't even put into description on what that must have been like. No, I agree. 
I forgot to throw on the magazine Metal Edge. That was in my top three. I totally I loved Metal brain Edge. farted on that. Metal Edge Metal Edge was it wasn't the Ripper the Circus. It was they tried to be that, but they what am I trying to say here? They were they're they, more of a modern kind of yeah, they, they kept up more with, with the the modern everything, you know. They didn't the really Metal Edge stick. Awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they tried to stay a little bit more relevant, if that makes sure. sense. Sure. You know? I, I you know, and I don't even want to say that because obviously at the at the peak of, you know, like Rip or Circus, Hit Parader, like they were they were top dog, but man, Metal Edge definitely they prevailed throughout the decades, to say the least. Before we get the line, I want to show you this uh December 89 cover of Metallica, the Jumbo Collector's Issue. It includes the outrageous pictorial of picking up chicks with Axl Rose, and you can also register for the Great White Leather Jacket Giveaway. <laughs> Aw, man. Where were you on that one? You should have registered, or did you register? Did you try to get the jacket? I don't think so. At the time, I was eight years old. Yeah, so probably not. <laughs> Great memories. Uh, thanks again to Mr. Lawn Friend for joining us. Are you ready to go to Las Vegas and hear probably some never heard before shit? Uh, yeah, I am. And disclaimer for anybody listening to this episode, I sound normal right now. You know, Shane and I, we decided to to record a little bit after we had talked to him. So my 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 audio doesn't sound as good. We were having a little bit of technical difficulties and everything. We just, we started recording. We didn't want to stop anything. It was working. So I just want to give everyone a heads up in case you're wondering why I sound normal now and then sound a little bit more AM radio-ish during the interview. You just gave away the behind the scenes production of a podcast for all of how an intro is done after you record a special guest. But not every single intro is, it's not always like that. It just, that just happens to be how... Some of them are. It just happened to work tonight. <laughs> when I hounded Lon for five months and he finally comes on, we did not want to bore him with our intro, and we had some technical difficulties, and I said, Jeff, don't you even think about leaving this call because we're hitting record and we're running with it. <laughs> yep, and you know what? It worked, and the conversation was great. You guys are all going to enjoy it. I can't you know, speak enough good things about Lon and the fact that he took as much time as he did to talk to us. I mean, he really... I thought we were going to get maybe 30 or 40 minutes of really good material. And he gave us, what, 90 minutes of just solid, solid stuff. So, again, Mr. Friend, thank you so much. Gold material, Las Vegas, Mr. Lon Friend. Here we go. Enjoy, everyone. Okay, so the look at these. These were like when uh, Aerosmith was playing their residency, right? There you go. See that? Sure. You have the, oh, yep. All the wings. The clip-on mics. So they gave, so the guy who was like walking me around, you know, promotion dude, some fast talking slick Vegas marketing shithead. He's, <laughs> he's, uh, he goes, you want some, you want some Errol Smith earbuds? I go, yeah, okay. And I, <laughs> I said, them, those are pretty nice. He goes, yeah, take them. I go, okay. Hell yeah. So that's what I'm using. Oh, that would explain why they sound so good. Yeah. Thanks, Steven Tyler. Where are you guys located? I'm in Florida law in Fort Myers. Oh. I'm in Minneapolis. You want a Fort Myers story? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, 2007. Uh, somehow I reconnect with Larry Flint at a porn convention here. Okay. He hasn't seen me in 15 years, so I, uh, I'm having a really good time. Just 
hanging with around the hustler people and shit like that was my past. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Evan Seinfeld from Biohazard comes strolling toward me with this statuesque porn star named Tara Patrick. Okay. And he goes, Lon friend, what the fuck? And he hugs me. He goes, hey, this is Tara. I said, yeah. He goes, I, I, I need to talk to you about something. I go, okay. He goes, listen, not right now, but when we get when, when you get back to L.A. Uh, and I was I was living back in Los Angeles then, so he uh, he says Tara Patrick and him are they want a book to do a book deal, they, and they want to create a book called Rockstar Porn Star: A Marriage Made in Heaven and Hell, and they want me to write the proposal. <laughs> so over the next two months, I start to, you know put some notes together. I mean, it, it crashed and burned and somebody else ended up doing a book on Tara Patrick. Sure. Based on my p- pitch because, uh, their, their marriage started to fall, <laughs> fall apart. <laughs> but what, what the, the re, where, where I'm circulating to is he says, I'm flying you out to Fort Myers to watch your strip. And I spent a <laughs> night in Fort Myers and he was, he was there and the, the, the strippers, are coming on to him and he's got, she's a star. She's getting paid like 10 grand to go to Fort Myers and and be this (laughs) famous stripper. And it was kind of a dark, dark area of the town. It wasn't like, I didn't feel that kind of safe, but anyway. (laughs) Oh, it's paradise, Lon. Everyone's living large in Fort Myers. Now where's Jeff? I'm I'm out of Minneapolis. Yeah, I'm in Minneapolis, okay. so I'm not living large like the Fort Myers people. I'm- You're living cold. I had a great friend during my affluent 90s when I used to play golf every year at Pebble Beach with a bunch of concert promoters and agents and label presidents a lifetime ago. And one of those guys' name was Randy Rock Levy. And he was a huge concert promoter in Minneapolis. I had forgot the name of his company. But a lot of the shows that you would have seen in arenas where he was the guy that that even, put, put, he even has a rock star named Lon. <laughs> yeah, rock. He's he had dreadlocks until he shaved them off. Anyway, okay, let's get started. So, unless we already have gotten started. Oh, we've started, but we're gonna have fun editing this. Lon, thank you so much for coming on a podcast for all. I've only been hounding you for five months now, and you finally caved into my request. Well. I respect vigilance, and I also re- <laughs> I also respect people that respect me, and that I don't do this a lot. I, I really don't. That's okay. We're gonna have fun tonight. I, I, I get asked constantly to do podcasts, and and I turn them turn them on down because I don't really I have nothing to promote. I'm sort of semi retired, and I pick and choose what I like to work on, and I still get out there to to concerts. As you know, I was. I was at the uh, Legion Stadium show. We we can begin. You can begin your questions with with that uh, apocalyptic event last weekend. I was in Vegas too. <laughs> I also saw you from afar at the 40th anniversary. But I really loved how you posted a video chanting the Freight Ends of Sanity as you left Allegiant Stadium the other night. As I left the, I well, okay, the video that I left the other night was for was after Billy Joel. That was my second night at Elite. Well, I'm sorry. I thought that was leaving Metallica going, oh we we oh yo I know Wizard of Oz. But I I I that clip 
was uh, the second night. Because okay, for me, okay. I was, you know, I was exhausted. It was also my third night in a row of concerts which I haven't done in since a year before the pandemic. I hadn't done it at all. That's a hell of a grind. Three nights in Vegas is tiring, and then you add concerts on top of that. I could only imagine. But I live here, so I I pick the shows I want to go to. And Fair Dev, enough. And Devin Allman has been wanting to. He's been inviting me to out and he had to cancel twice because he had COVID in his band and that first th- it just so happens that the Thursday night the the Almond Brothers family tribute thing happened at the what used to be the Hard Rock the joint and now it's the Virgin Virgin Hotel so I went to that and that was Very a cool. three hour fucking amazing jam session so good that even sebastian got up at the end because he's a friend of devon's and he came on stage and did no way he did did no way out and midnight rider at the end and nice great that's awesome then i had metallica on friday and then saturday was billy joel and as i was leaving the venue i just got i make these sometimes my clips they resonate sometimes a hundred people watch them that me walking for 30 seconds at the crowd is now the most watched video in my eight and a half years on Instagram. <laughs> I love it, man. The one, the one, it, it, it just eclipsed. It just eclipsed. And it's funny because me and Jerry Cantrell talked about this after there was a, a little, I'll tell you about it. We had a little audience with Lars at the end of the night and, about three four months ago whenever i got my booster shot i was inside my pharmacy and there was a chair there that said sit here for your booster and i you could look at the clip it's you got to go back a couple months okay and i'm i'm standing there with my mask on and i'm showing the the chair sit here for 10 minutes after you've had your when you get your booster and i just spontaneously went yeah, here comes the booster. Yeah, <laughs> no, we ain't gonna die. That that was the most viewed clip. I love it. OEO. <laughs> I love the OEO. Listen, I'm an outlier on Instagram. I write. I write. I use captions. I I expect people to read, which is naive of me because. It's a it's it's such an ADD medium, <laughs> millennials and Gen Zs with their stories, which make <laughs> no fucking sense to me half the time. Hey, I am a millennial, and it doesn't make sense to me. So I I understand. I've never posted a story. I've never I've done I've never want, they... I've never hashtagged anything. <laughs> Keep that trend up, Lon just about 30 years old so i'm right there in that generation of doing that and even i think it's absolutely ridiculous god these girls that all day long it's chronicling their every heartbeat pummeling me <laughs> with their memes on finding the perfect guy <laughs> or, or, or you could tell the boyfriend that did him wrong and then they pull out a quote from Rumi. i said no you're on the wrong page Rumi didn't give a fuck about you and your boy <laughs> <laughs> Rumi was speaking a poetic verse about connection to the universe and the love of the vibration of the cosmos. He doesn't care that That's your rock right. star boyfriend dumped you. Lon, it's cool to be talking to you ever since I was a kid. I have to show you what I dug up today for my archives. 
thanks. You're gonna make me feel old. No, oh, I love it. There's my boy. You, you remember? You remember this? This? <laughs> of uh, course. This uh, is their Life on Lars Rip edition from July of 1990. I I grew up on this shit. That's one of my best cover lines. Is their Life on Lars? Whenever I could bring Bowie into the picture, it- as well as this one, <laughs> it's gonna be good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that one. That that one's a classic too. That's one of the biggest selling issues we ever had. I one. believe it. And my favorite part on this, there's an editorial in the back called Picking Up Chicks with Axl Rose. Yeah, he didn't he didn't really like that. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think he could get over it, right? <laughs> I did a I did a headbangers ball friend at large segment in ninety-two, uh, where I'm sitting in my office and I'm talking, telling spontaneous uh news bits. They used to come to my office and shoot me uh, once a month, and they do all my segments, and I'd have some notes, but most of it I'd just do it off the cuff like I'm doing with you guys. Love it. And then I had this credenza that had pictures and stickers, and I'd wear a different shirt, and I'd help bands every week by wearing a shirt on MTV every week. So I have this I, this one this one episode. I have a poster of Eddie Vedder. That I that we had in the magazine from the grunge issue of a special issue of Rip I mean, a grunge issue and I'm talking about the issue and, and I, I remember do, that I remember it like it was yesterday and I'm sitting in front of the poster and I do this <laughs> and and I learned that and he didn't like that he he didn't like to be like praised to he, so uh, we're not worthy. This is in my Planet Rock. This is in Planet Rock. It's in the Pearl Jam chapter. So I go to Phoenix to see Pearl Jam. And uh, Danny Zalesko's promoting the show. And I get there early. But I have a, a gift with me because I knew Eddie was mad at me. So I wanted to bring something, a peace offering. So Danny Danny comes out. He goes, you know, Eddie, he's a little upset with you. I said, I know. I just need a minute with him. He goes, all right, wait. So brings Eddie out and Eddie goes, Lon, you know what we're about, right? That's that's not cool. And I said, I know. So I'd like you to have this. This is my original 1971 copy of Jethro Tull's stand-up, the original vinyl. And you open up the album and they stand up. It was like they unfold and they stand up. <laughs> And I signed it to Eddie. Sorry, Lon. And he he opens up the album and he looks at it. He goes, this, this is really cool. You're a good guy. Oh, I love it. It's all right. And that that was it. And, <laughs> and from there on out. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him in a long time. But but my daughter went to the, sh- to the show while I was at... Uh, Billy Joel, she was at, uh, or Metallica that week, and she was seeing Eddie in Los Angeles. She loves Eddie. And she's in that chapter, too, because I did a road trip with her when she was a year and a half old and I pissed my then wife off immensely. Look, you fuckers should have read Planet Rock before this interview. That well, That's a no-brainer. Absolutely. We've got plenty to talk about, though. Because okay. All right. I think Jeff can agree with me from the VH1 Behind the Music to the year and a half in the life documentaries is when the lawn friend relationship with Metallica really hit home with us diehard fans that have watched that shit 500 times in a row. Yeah. It just wasn't the rip magazine lawn. It was you showing up to one-on-one studios with a stash of porn for the guys. 
Play goal for Jason, if I remember. It's Lars Ulrich's favorite magazine because it has large-breasted women. <laughs> he also likes the best of Busty, which comes out annually. You didn't bring any magazines for James. Yeah, I did. Oh, oh no. Torso, oh, honcho, inches. Yeah. And Bob Rock used to read this while they were making Here slippery women. Here are John Bonchoy's magazines. No, these, these are Jason's magazines. Uncut and Play Guy. <laughs> Do you want to watch this Madonna pornographic video? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> A lot of the bonding and the trust was built around the simple fact that I had come from Hustler Magazine, mm-hmm. and and uh, I built a lot of porn collections among, you know, the more debauched rock stars. And when I when the Metallica thing that that was it started with Injustice for All when I went on the road to uh my first my first road trip with metallica was jason newstead's homecoming show in i believe 88 uh, in phoenix yep come out of flotsam and he was and he was just doing his first home arena show and me and brian slagle went we we went to phoenix together and went to that to that particular show that was the night kirk introduced me to jaegermeister <clears throat> and well, uh, that was a nice gesture from him. That was that was my kind of <laughs> bapt my brown liquid baptismal. <laughs> and uh it was I told Brian and I had a laugh the other night when we were talking to Lars after the metal the uh the Legion show about 1 30 in the morning. There's just a handful of us back in the bowels of the Allegiant Stadium in this private kind of after party. Mm-hmm. They're they've been really strict in the bubble. You never see James and Kirk. I text with Kirk often, but you never see those guys. They, during the pandemic, they don't come out. But but Lars will see a few of his a few of his you know guests, and his wife's from Las Vegas. Jessica was born and raised here, mm-hmm. so she had you know people, <clears throat> and uh, it's me and Slagle and Eddie Trunk and and Jerry, and we're just kind of talking about telling stories right like friends and uh and brian says you know lon and i could have died that night in in phoenix and i said (laughs) yeah we could have because brian was so drunk when we drove from the arena back to the hotel where lars invited us to like this room after party He's doing like 80 miles an hour on the empty Arizona highway. And he looks at me with this, with that kind of, he, he, Brian used to be much chubbier. So he had these chubby cheeks and his whiskers. He says, Lon, I got to confess something. I should not be driving. (laughs) (laughs) And that made me feel really comfortable. Oh, of course. (laughs) Things couldn't get any safer. But that's a, a gallon of Yeg and 100 miles an hour somewhere in Phoenix. That's where great, I... Great combo. That's that's where sort of... Um, I mean, seeing them live really... Well, I saw the Monsters show at the L.A. Coliseum, but they did such a short set, but it was brutal. It was They were early in the set, Kingdom Come, then Metallica, then Dokken, then Scorpions, then Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And they the, they really showed in a stadium in 1988, what they were 
what they were made of. I mean, fans left that place going, I know who I saw was the greatest band on the bill. Sure. <clears throat> so I think what we really have to touch on over the course of this conversation is the, the longevity and how they never mailed in a show. No, I mean, we, this we talk is about that decade. weekly on this show. We talk about it weekly. If just if you were if you saw the Allegiant show, you're seeing these guys are in mid to late fifties, and they've got sixty thousand fans there, and they're not. They like having the snake pit. They like having the stage that winds and is crafted so brilliantly, so fans can kind of move in and out. They they've always been. Uh, on the cutting edge of of performance visuals, that first Snake Pit tour where you could where fans could like be there almost in the middle of the stage was so mind blowing. Yeah, ninety one, ninety two. Yep, I remember you actually. I think one of the first times I saw footage of the Snake Pit, you had footage of your own from like ninety one on Headbangers Ball. Yeah, I, I did. I was. I brought my camera. I had my wife and my daughter at that show at the Forum in Los Angeles. I have video of Megan standing with her headphones on right at the at the railing, and Kurt comes over to her, and he starts playing the opening riffs to Unforgiven, and he's looking right at my year-and-a-half-old daughter. It's, that's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty memorable. Yeah, it's pretty memorable. That's amazing. Especially they, they since have, we knew that you you were well aware of the Black Elm before the rest of the world was. Well, the the uh, the way that uh, evolved was first it comes from the trust and how we covered justice, and um, then conversations within their camp, which was Lars and Cliff Bernstein mainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we want to do something special for this record because they. Believe me, they knew that Black was gonna. That 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 was it right there. There was no doubt that they were on the cusp of something. It was it was a conscious choice to move to Bob Rock to get that sonic quality that that. And I I know this for a fact. When Lars heard Doctor Feel Good, yes, he he wanted that sort of thickness and dimension on the next Metallica record and it's Bob Rock was just he was the guy and they they set out this long plan they, they wrote they wrote incredibly cro- real heavy crossover material songs that wouldn't be stuck on metal radio right. and it would have a bigger universe and then it's like they were cultivating uh, what they hadn't had before, which was women. And they were, <laughs> and they Very didn't true. have women. And that's the album where James became went from a growler to a singer. Right. Yeah. To uh, it was, it was up. We were the magazine that had all the buzz. We were the we weren't the biggest selling. We were the most respected. So. They came to, they came to me and they said, "We, we want to give you an exclusive opportunity to document the making of this record. We, we're not sure how long it's going to take, but you'll have special access to the studio." And that 
is how it began. And I would send, remember, these are the days of faxes. Yeah. So it would, they were at one-on-one studio. It was on Lancashire, in the valley where I grew up, on Lancashire Boulevard in North Hollywood. <clears throat> and I, right near Universal Studios. And I, and I just would send this a fax on the day, like, is it cool for me to come down now? And I'd I'd mostly send them to Lars and, and he'd say, yeah, come to, oh, they give me instructions when to be there. And I'd go there for like an hour or two. And the first like three or four visits, it was all drum tracks. It was sure. Pro Tools drum tracks. And I really didn't have a whole lot to do except kind of take in the atmosphere. So sure. I tried to convey that to the to the to the readers. Then there were a couple really special special kind of episodes uh, where they're in the they're, when they're in production. There was the James visit, and that one is so memorable because it's the tent of doom. It's when he showed me how he sets up his mics in the studio to to get that sound, and he called it the tent of doom with the U-Haul blankets. Yeah, the moving blankets. That's right. And so I, I just I mean, you got to understand something. I've never been a musician. I'm, I'm not a tech guy. So I operate more on vibe and more on a feeling and trying to bring to my access and my presence where I'm permitted to go with my eyes and my sense of, 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 of perception and empirical reality. I try to give that to the fans in in lieu of my knowledge of no, absolutely nuts and nuts and bolts of what's happening. So I never tried to step outside my comfort zone. I just talked about what I thought fans would dig. And then it went on month after month. And we're like, this record's taking a long time, but I was, I was committed. The magazine was committed. There were a couple where I couldn't get to the studio because I had to like take a trip or something. And Stefan Chirazi, who I had hired as my ex- kind of exclusive freelancer. And when I met him, he was like 19 years old and he wrote for Kerrang. And I said, I <laughs> yep. think Kerrang's the best metal magazine in the world. And I want Rip to be as drug as Kerrang. I want you to write for me. He goes, I'll write exclusive. I love, I love what you're doing. I will write exclusively for you. You give me enough work and I won't write for any other American metal magazines. And I said, done. I handshake. Fucking deal. <laughs> deal. deal handshake bro. with Stefan in 1987. Wow. And so he was the guy and never knew that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. It was, it was on a road trip to see a band called Roxy blue in Memphis, Tennessee. And I swear it was a month after I took over the, the helm of the magazine. Cause wow. I had, I had to transition out of Hustler. I was doing two things at once, but then ultimately I went into the CEO's office uh, and Jim Coles. And I said, you know, I'm just, let me have the rock magazine and give me better paper, better production and, and uh, some, you know, some kind of a budget and uh, advertise. We'll get advertisers in the, I'm really, I'm really got these great free stringers of, photographers i'm meeting all these people it was so it was so organic how i met all these great people and the the like the earliest people in the run were just were dell james and guns and roses and mm-hmm. and uh and metallica that that's a totally true story they're mixing and justice for all in hollywood and i go out to 
the Roxy, to, and I forgot who I was going to see, but James and Kurt, James and Lars are standing right there at Sun Sunset, and Lars recognizes me, and he says, "You, you the lawn friend, you, you're a hustler guy. You, you did the, you did those fucking articles about Sharon Mitchell in Paris." <laughs> I said, <laughs> "I go, yeah." Oh, there's that lawn guy from that porno mag, huh? Yeah, and then James <laughs> says. Let's go. The, let's go get a beer, and we go to the Rainbow next door, and that's where our relationship started. We spent like two or three hours just talking. Awesome. And I think that's where wow. it kind of began, and that was that was while they were mixing Justice in Los Angeles. So the, the over the over the years, and then I, I mean, it's hard to just sort of it, readers digest this, right? But just to address specific things, this is. For me to still be welcomed like family into this band, and a lot of bands, they don't, they don't have memories as long or as strong as Metallica. They treat it. their people. I'll give you a great case in point: the the the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. He, Lars called me personally. My cell phone rings. I never answered those numbers that say blocked. I said, yeah. Hey, it's Lars. I go, hey, man. So we're doing this really special thing for Hall of Fame. I said, I'm not as good as Jim Brewer, but I do a pretty good. I do you're, pretty, it's you're, pretty good. You're right up there, man. We like it. We're uh, we're, we're, we're doing something no, no, no band's doing. We're inviting as many people as we could think of who were who who we can give back to who were part of the Metallica story and we want them to be at the ceremony and he, we're going to take care of you we'll fly in two days we're going to have a party at the house of blues across the street before and um i said yeah and then i get there and the party before you know, there's like Ron McGovney is there yeah. i mean every guy who ever played all the way yeah. back all the everybody who's ever involved is there, and Lars is introducing me to people. And awesome, and was Johnny, Lloyd Grant there? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, he, he was. was. He was, yeah. The only That's one awesome. who wasn't there and he was invited was Dave Mustaine. <laughs> Imagine that. He was surprise, surprise. He was invited, but he was he didn't make. He had something else to do. Yeah, he, he had a Megadeth meeting. But the but but the point I'm making is is that they go. They're they're so respectful of how they became. Yeah, that's huge. The giant that they are. I often was. I've done a lot of Metallica interviews. You've seen me on like classic albums and the mm-hmm. year and a half. But the the thing that's so consistent is they they've always, no matter how huge they got, they always kept their fans within an arm's distance. It's like you felt like they were your guy, like. They're still your buddies. And watch, just watch what they do now in 2022 at the end of a show. They still, they spend 20 minutes on that stage throwing picks, giving out st- sticks, walking around the crowd, yep. slapping hands of the fans. Yep. That's what they do. You know, that means so much to fans who, who now have to pay an exorbitant amount for the tickets that they used to get. 30 years ago for a song right. now it's expensive to, it's expensive to see metallica and that's they put on an enormous production so it it costs a lot of money 
And it's amazing that 40 years later that they still are just as humble in the fact that they haven't forgotten where they where they came from. You yeah, know, you, who who got them there? It's it's the fans that you, got them to the point And you could see at. all their faces. I can, I've always been able to kind of read celebrities, the ones I've been close to, to see if they're really genuine or they're putting on a mask or airs because they... They got to play this for people. You play the role. Play very good, but these guys, and I'm not. This isn't hyperbole. They're absolutely genuine. When you see James doing the like, oh, 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 oh when he's doing that that great um, memory remains, memory remains, and he chanting and he's raising his hand. I mean, when he hears fifty thousand people do that. Or like we did at Chase, I put up that clip. It was so good at Chase. Yeah, Memory amazing. maze. He's it's choking him up because he still feels the passion of the fan. Because all those guys are just rich beyond words, but they all know that they wouldn't have been here. True. And they never. They I don't think they ever believed they would. They would sell the amount of records or tour to this size for as long as they have when they were sitting in that garage and they were writing songs and Brian Slagle was listening to him and Johnny Z was listening to him and, and, and they, they were putting just machine gun hardcore shit together. And that's a long way from selling out Allegiant stadium where the Raiders <laughs> play. Yeah. Far from, but yeah. you know, they've been in state. I've been in European stadiums with them. they, this band's been in stadiums for three decades, for God's sakes. Yeah, they never really had their downfall. They never really had that kind of, you know, even some of the bands that have really made it through, it seems like at some point, you know, they still kind of had their, I don't want to say downfall or their downtime, but like well, they've had Kiss and they had their time where, you know, things weren't as up and up, you know, and even Bon Jovi and, and other, you know, Axe Motley crew, but Metallica just always stayed on top. It but they, like. but they've had speed bumps. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. sure. And the sure. great, the greatest one of all is some kind of monster because they did have turmoil in the band and James was mm-hmm. not in good shape. And when they, those, those guys, but this, this shows you how magnificent they are. They took a very dark period mm-hmm. and they turned it into a piece of art. What, what they, a very naked and transparent piece of art. What they were doing was making an EPK for St. Anger, which is <laughs> a very angry, dissonant sure. uh, record it's a very cathartic record. It's a brutal record, but they sent those guys who made the, who made the documentary were just hired by the label to go in and collect uh, press footage. They're creating a, what they called back then electronic press kits, EPKs. And it, and they, but this is what Metallica does. They, they're in, they're into the journey, not the destination. So they follow. Exactly. They, follow they, this work they want yeah. to share it with they want to share it with their with yeah. their fans with their listeners with everybody and sure. even at their most vulnerable they're still putting it out there and i think that's a big reason why people really gravitate and like you said you know they feel like you know that that's their guys you know they're you know they're one of the boys you know when they when they see metallica live when they watch those videos when they go back and watch old interviews because they just they really make it seem very authentic for 
as famous as they are. And the Met, the Met Club too. Don't forget that. Yeah, no, those yeah, shows, absolutely. Those shows at Chase, all over the world. Those are just for the fans. Yep, just Met Club. If you weren't, if you weren't Met Club, no matter how much money you had, you couldn't see those shows at Chase. That's giving back to the people that got you where you are. Well, Lon, I have to tell you, we had Phil Toll on, Metallica's therapist during that era, about nine months ago on the show. So he's the most downloaded guest we've had so far. But I think you're gonna, I think you're gonna beat him. No, I, I'm not looking for metrics. You never know. We'll let you know. Look, I would use hashtag. <laughs> not a statistic. I, I, I wouldn't keep, hashtag therapist. I wouldn't keep my my social media private, and I would use hashtags if I gave a fuck about numbers. <laughs> I just want I just want to connect with people who find me and who want to hear stories about the things I've been permitted to see. I did not get rich. I did not have Rip Magazine percentage i i had a bankruptcy in 2009 i've my second book talks a lot about my potholes on my road less traveled but what's can what i consider myself abundant in is uh is relationship mm-hmm. and there it's very sac- sacred to me how a lot of these these guys they treat me <laughs> look I'm not selling records for anybody. I, mm-hmm. I'm not on MTV showing mm-hmm. a, a CD that could be seen by a couple hundred thousand people. I don't have, I'm not putting anybody on the cover of a magazine. That's so long. That's decades ago. This is just kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a legacy and it's a respect thing. And it, it means a lot to me. I'm, I'm 65 years old. I, I look down at that show at Allegiant, there were five separate pits going on the floor. I mean, if I'd have gone down there, I would have come out. They would have had the EMTs out checking my pulse. <laughs> I stayed <laughs> as far away from the moshers as possible. <laughs> Lon, we are talking about the memory remains. Over your three-plus decades knowing Metallica, what's your favorite memory of the band to, to date? whether it's a monumental one or some of the funniest shit you've ever heard Lars say. Yeah, when whether you, it's when kind of private it. and personal or public. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, yeah. I was just say, yeah, just something that... What, what's your find... favorite memory of, the, of you know, the five guys over the last 30 years that you've known of since the Justice era? Jeez. And dropping off porn on the pool, on the pool table at the studio counts. Yeah, it got me in. It got me in the "Nothing Else Matters" video. Thanks exactly. To, <laughs> thanks to Adam Dubin and his camera that went everywhere. We've had Adam on the show <laughs> as well, and that video just passed a billion views. Just think of that number. Really, a billion views of "Nothing Else Matters" studio video. You yep. mean my cameo where we're looking at magazines? Has exactly. Been seen That's pretty cool. And 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 nine hundred ninety nine million of those people go, "Who's that fucking guy standing next to Lars?" <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. I'll just say there's a few of us that definitely know. <laughs> it's fine. I'm I'm okay. I I like being in the in the shadows. As as you said, life. as you said, code of the road, man. Code of the road. Well, you know from watching year and a half that I used to that when I visited the studio, I would try to bring things, and I did bring one time. I brought down the Madonna video. Yep, that's on there. Yeah, to show, yep. show to Lars, and that was fun. You know, I never, I never uh, shared this this kind of quirky story. I think it was I was at Arista. Whenever Load came out, 
95, maybe? 4, 95? 96. 96, yeah. I was at Arista Records, and and um, and I got invited down to the studio while they were either tracking or or uh, something. At the plant? Yeah, yeah, but that's, yeah, that's where, that's where they, uh, the plant in Sausalito is where we made the, the Bachman's record, the band I signed to Arista. We made that there. Okay. And the band stayed on the same houseboat that the, that the breeders stayed on. Oh, that's cool. Sorry. That's um, cool. <laughs> but, but there, it's just like 96, 95, 96. And, and I come in and they're all sitting in, in that just, shitty little lounge and and james is like laughing and he's he's obsessed with this vhs tape that someone brought in of what was then called ultimate fighting oh, hey, hey it was the first hey. time it was the first time i ever he goes you gotta see this these they don't have gloves they're killing each other <laughs> He was so into it. This was the absolute seeds of what became gigantic, the UFC. What became the UFC. But it was... Oh, man, that's awesome. It was James Hetfield that showed me the very first... Very first time you saw it, huh? I'll tell you something. This is kind of like the... People have said that I have this Zelig quality, you know, that Woody Allen movie where he's like, how did he get into that place? Why is he there? It's like a shapeshifter or time traveler. I remember that movie. So uh, Kirk Kirk Hammett grew up in El Sobrante, California, with Les Les Claypool was one of his best buddies. So I'm out at uh, I'm out on the road doing a story uh, on the uh, the Anthrax Public Enemy Primus tour. I believe it was ninety three, maybe. But I'm in Denver, Colorado, and I just I see the bus and it looks like it's Primus's bus, so I knock on the window and Les opens up. He goes, "Hey, get in here! I want to show you something." I go, okay, dude, and gets in. First thing he does is he pulls out his bong, and and I go, yeah, "Okay, the important stuff." That, yeah, and then <laughs> then he pops in a VHS cassette and he goes, "Check this out," and I'm watching this twisted animated cat and dog and i go what the fuck is this he goes buddy of mine created this it's called ren and stimpy <laughs> it's gonna be on nickelodeon it's gonna be big i go and you said what the hell is this crazy Whoa. crazy it's, so that's like the beginning when you see something at the very beginning you yeah. think, wow i'm in how did i get how did i get here whether it's a cartoon or ufc right or 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 the black album. I mean, you're, ah, you're small, at the beginning. Small of a, details. Small details. <laughs> yeah, you're you're at the beginning of a bunch of very monumental things. The very most sacred beginning of all my beginnings was being seven years old and sitting on my divorced mom's living room floor with my four year old brother watching four mop tops from England sing. She loves you, and I wow. want to hold your hand on the sure. Ed Sullivan oh, show. Man, wow. to see that live. Feb- like, February, 9th, February 9th, 1964. I'm seven and a half. Boy, you remember that like yesterday. It's what set me on my path 
for me, I didn't know what music. I'm seven. I don't know what music was. I, there's no technology back then. I bought my first album. I went across the street to the Fashion Square Mall. I lived in Sherman Oaks, California,、mm-hmm. and I and I bought my first album, Meet the Beatles. And then every single record that came out, I had it. I you had, had it, man. I had That's where it all started. I love the, I love the Beatles. Seven in the Beatles to what you've done through your whole career line. That's that's a great story. You see anything from the beginning? It, it's it's fans often use this sentiment with me. They say I was born at the wrong time because because they know that like I was in the eighties. A lot of their Groups that they love so much. I saw them in the seventies. I saw Pink Floyd. It's Chris, you were here show at the、nice. sports arena in seventy five. Nice was, was sitting so far from the stage. Like me and my friend Mark, we're in like at the last row. But and we're thinking these 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 are shitties. But and there's no big screens and shit back no, then. No, no. But we but we but we get stoned and we don't care and we're watching the whole show and then where the sun is eclipsed by the but this is this is so great because it's the memory so the sun is eclipsing the moon right at the end the dark side of the moon and here's these two stone teenagers and we look up like this and there's this wire above right above our heads and an airplane on this huge wire and this airplane. Takes off right over our heads, like we can almost touch it, and flies and crashes into the screen as the sun is eclipsing the moon. And all of a sudden, we go from having the worst seats in the house to the best seats. <laughs> to the best the seats. <laughs> that's fucking cool. Yeah, that, that is, is、awesome. fucking cool. <laughs> I also remember the first time. I mean, me as a kid, when I found out what the Black Elm looked like, you were holding it on MTV. The Cliff Bernstein, I told him. I said I got my own spot on MTV,、uh, and my first spot is August third, nineteen ninety one. And he in his office, he says, "We're going to give you something special for your very first friend at large thing." Wow! And they messengered over to me a, the the cover, just the cover pressing of the Black Record,、mm-hmm. and I showed that, and I was. I was so awkward. I mean, I didn't. They were shooting it on a soundstage in Santa Monica, not in my office. I was very uncomfortable the first few sessions, but I, I got better. And then、um, I, I just almost remember I held it up. I go, "Look, it's huge there. See the snake?" And like, like a kid. Yeah, you were. But me at home on TV, it was so like low lit. I couldn't tell what the hell. Yeah, it was low was, lit. I couldn't see the snake, and I couldn't the back of it. I, I remember you also said the Unforgiven is fade to black part two. I remember that as a kid. Okay, maybe I do. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if you have evidence of that, I I fess up. Yes, maybe I did. <laughs> the man, I was fortunate enough to get a copy of the new record, and here it is. Ah, it's huge. It'll be known through history, from here and beyond, as the Black Metallica album, because it's pretty black, don't you think? But there is like this snake vibe down here in the corner. Check this out. There's the logo. Now let's flip it over. Whoa, the tracks. Enter Sandman. You've seen that video here on MTV. It's killer. Sad but true. Crushing bass on this song. Holier than now. 
Oh, yeah, then thou. This thing just crunches. It's got the groove. You wouldn't believe it. Unforgiven, Fade to Black fans. I'll call this Fade to Black Part 2. Wherever I May Roam, Don't Tread on Me, Killer Tracks. Through the Never, this is one of my favorite songs on the record. Nothing Else Matters. Can we say ballad? Metalla ballad? First, maybe the last. It's unbelievable. You won't believe it. Listen to it. Of Wolf and Men, The God That Failed, this song which we documented in the magazine a few months ago. James Tolles was about his mother, the death of his mother. It's really, really heavy. My Friend of Misery, Unbelievable Leads by Mr. Kirk Hammond, and The Struggle Within, the final track and a killer track. This record will be out in your stores nine days from today. And uh, there's a big party going on today in um, New York City at Madison Square Garden for the release of the Metallica record. 19,000 fans are gonna hear the record nine days before it's released. It's incredible. And all I can say is go out and buy it nine days from now. Next time, next hour, White Lion, the new lineup, the rehearsal studio. I was there. I'll see you next. But I mean, it was so low lit. I'm like, why can't they turn the studio lights up? And you were talking about the snake in the corner. And I don't think any of us at home could see it. Where I'm like, what the hell is this album art? You know, you, you want to hear what's funny? That for the first few episodes, my, I had Carol Donovan and Nancy McDonald. They were my producers. And they 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 had a crew out in L.A. and they they shot me at this at this place in Santa Monica. I forgot the name of it, but the second second or third time I'm there, and Ricky Rackman is doing an interview. Nice uh, that day, and I don't, I'm not sure who he's interviewing because I'm doing my segment on another part of the stage. But as I'm walking out. I see Kurt Cobain wearing a dress, like no, a yellow shirt, like a yellow gown or something. And no, I and history. I swear I took a double take. I walked I walked out to my car and I went, "Did I just see fucking Kurt Cobain wearing a dress?" <laughs> and then it, then when yes, they aired did. Ricky's segment with 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 uh, with Kurt, he, he had the dress on. But talk about history, yeah, and goofy shit. <laughs> Yeah, there's some goofy stuff. There, well, there was a Nam show in '88 where Rip had our first booth, and and the, the rockers would come by the booth. And I remember uh, running into James, and he goes, "Let's go get a beer." And we get a beer, and then we go up to my room. He goes, "Oh, you got a you got a high room. Let's drop some water balloons on people." <laughs> said, really? <laughs> Whatever you say, boss. Whatever you want, dude. Like, all right, let's do it. I think we dropped a couple water balloons from my balcony. I I don't remember exactly, but um, he had he had such a kid in the candy store sense of humor. Like, he was so easy to be around because everything was fun with him, and the only thing that he got serious about was his fucking music and his I book. bet. I bet. That I'll tell you that is the one cons- constant with that band. I don't care if they were playing in a, in a club 50 people or a stadium with 50,000. They they are playing just as hard. They're playing the songs just as hard and that's that is a great source of ad- great source of admiration comes from that. Cuz I've been around artists that just didn't want to uh we're not making a lot tonight. I don't even want to be here so Yeah, sadly. You're being disrespectful to the fan. I, I remember seeing Molly Hatchet once in front of 200. My brother and I went to like the Railhead in Boulder City in outside Vegas, 
I swear, I, there must have been 200 people there. They played shredded. But we're like, I can't believe there's only like 200. For 200 people, huh? They they, they shred. It, it was a guitar meltdown. And it was so great. I, I will never not give props to acts that maybe they're not at the top of their popularity anymore sure. but if and especially now as they're getting in their ages getting there if you can't deliver stop stop playing just don't go out to take the check if it just don't what's your opinion on motley crew right now speaking of that subject <laughs> i was gonna I'm being, ask. I'm being serious i i i, I don't know I, i'm so into Tom and Pammy and Tom, the the Hulu show. Oh, that's yeah, the Hulu <laughs> yeah. show. I, yeah. I think yeah. it's just magnificent. Good entertainment. It's great entertainment. It's yeah, fantastic acting. I agree. Yeah, Sebastian Stan's nuance of how Tommy's inflections and how the like he was like a little kid around Pamela. I agree. It's it's spot on. Yeah, and Lily James, she should win an Emmy. She's phenomenal. And there's a lot to be learned from that because that's about the transition of the internet. That's that's where it's a good point. You learned a lot about technology. What's happening in ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, and when a look, I can I know the porn guys that that are represented. Milton Ingley, I've met him many times. He these guys. They the porn guys would not put out the videotape because they didn't have signed releases. Right. That's the part that's so interesting. Like, oh, we're just gonna sit, we're gonna bootleg it, sell it ourselves, right. put it out on the street, and it's it's fascinating. It really is, and it's it shows you really. I think through Lily, you really understand how brutal it was for Pam. You know, Tommy had really Tommy's had pretty thick skin. He's well, being in Motley Crue, yeah, you have to. Yeah, I don't shit. Those guys will just they're like. Carbon fourteen. They just keep on going. A little bit of notoriety for those guys is nothing new. Yeah, uh, it's but to me, it's really about kind of good entertainment. But I've always, I've thought that I was always fondest of Tommy. I stayed, I still am in touch with him. Like I'll send him an email about something, and he'll respond. But he's. He, to me, was always kind of like, I mean, Nikki and I had a time where we were close. Our kids played with each other and I went to birthday parties. <clears throat> but it's really Tommy's the one I kind of understood the best. And and I did uh, I did have some, you know, rough a rough period in 03 where I was working on his book proposal. And then I got uh, kind of railroaded out of the project. But I can't talk about it because I had to sign a non-disclosure. <laughs> Jeff, is your cock long enough where you can honk the horn on your pontoon boat like Tommy? <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, by no, the way, I, they <laughs> shot it here on Lake Mead. It that's, was, that's right. That's right. It was down in your neck of the woods. Hey, you know what it is? It's not far. It was. It was. It was. It was two people in love. Very true. Out on a boat. It's. It's. It's romantic. It wasn't made for scandal. It wasn't made. It, right. wasn't, it wasn't produced. Prurient reasons. I mean, Pam's Pam's doing a lot of the. She she's so precious that. Yep. That's what I kind of learned. I remember when it was when the thing was stolen and everything that happened back then. But I didn't. I'm learning a lot. If it's 
it's literary license, right? It's not all true. That Hulu show was great, but back when he honked the horn, I was laughing my ass off for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Lon, we got one tough question for you. Are you ready, sir? Yeah. What would be your Metallica song that should not be? Oh, you asked him before I could ask him. I was going to ask the same question. One song from 40 years that you think should not be and you just can't stand it. We ask every guest. You mean the song that I don't that I just don't like or I think is less than anything. Something yeah. where you maybe cringe. You either wish it they'd never wrote it or if you hear it you're going to go I'm going to hit skip on that a one and song go to the that next should song. not be Mr. Lawn Friend. You're asking someone who took the high road through his all his whole career didn't review records that got one star only I said why are we, why are we bothering to dump on an artist who created something let's let's have good things to say about I know you've always been positive I'm not asking So you you're dump, asking me a question that has a negative answer Well 40 years we got to get one negative comment out of you what do you got <laughs> There's got to be one song You know I even, I I just went back and listened to the Lou Reed record that is an acceptable answer. We hear that a lot on this show. No, but yeah, I that, that, I thought it had some really good shit on it. But there was one song that I guess I guess it kind of was reminding me of Lou Reed's Metal Machine music. He he just made the album to piss off the record company, mm-hmm. and and he he really didn't give a fuck what fans thought of it. Didn't care. But I know that. I know this from talking to Lars about it, that when Lou Reed wants to do something with you, and he's he's a Hall of Fame icon, and those guys have such musical respect. They're very well-versed in the history of music. They understand what begets what begets. What, where does it come from? You, know, when you go back to the Stones, and you got Aerosmith, and you got Guns N' Roses, and there's just these lineages that you have to have pay to acknowledge. And those guys are very respectful. So he says, look, fuck, Lou Reed wants to do something with you. What, are we going to say no? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, uh, no, that makes total sense. I think James kind of figures that their fans will, will, will ride with them and they'll respect them going out of the comfort zone. I thought S&M was... You know, Procol Harum made one of the greatest albums of all time with the London Symphony Orchestra. Conquistador became a hit single uh, live version with a full orchestra. So there was precedent set. But when Metallica took that happiness with Michael Kamen into a full orchestra 20, 20, 22 years ago, yep. you can't guarantee that your fans are going to like ride that one with you. I went to the 20th anniversary of that show, the Chase. I was there. It's when they opened the Chase. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was one of the best nights ever. In my Metallica history, that was one of the best. Especially when you open with the Call of Cthulhu. Uh, it was so, it was epic in scope. I mean, I, you know, I I have a, my my dad's a piano player. He, he understands classical music, and 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 I've been around a lot of prog my life, and some of the best players in rock and roll are prog players because they're classically trained. Mm-hmm. 
John Petrucci, classically trained, Steve Vai, classically trained. Amazing. And these guys who who put out these you know, fusion records, there's so much virtuosity in their playing. And it it goes, well, you know, Eddie Van Halen named his kid after Mozart. So yeah. Wolfgang, yep. I think it's important that that the contemporary artists introduce the young generations. <clears throat> I like to I like to share this one. Um, you know, my daughter's been the greatest source of turning me on to music for the last, I'd say, 15, 20 years. You know, she she used to go on LimeWire and find demos from Florence and the Machine and nice. and and uh and uh, uh Bon Iver and she'd play it for she goes, Dad, you you really like this. She's like Kate Bush and she plays me Florence. I go, God, I'm in love. Hell and yeah. I've been in love with Florence ever since. <clears throat> so uh um Megan we're going to see a uh, uh, K-Rock weenie roast together. She's like 15. And uh, NLA, K-Rock sponsored uh, show. They did it every year. And uh, the Deftones are playing. <clears throat> and, and she goes, Dad, I really want to see the Deftones. They do this really cool song called The Chauffeur. And I said, play me, play me that song. She plays it for me. I go, Meg, this is a Duran Duran song. She goes, what? <laughs> yeah it's, it's one of my favorite duran duran songs it's what are you talking about dad blue silver that's that's she goes it is and that's that that is how my my kid finds out about duran duran because of the deftones sure it, it happens a lot like that who would have thought yeah i mean when 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 James did and Metallica did that fantastic cover of of uh, on the road, here I am on the road again. Oh, turn the page. It it drives you back to Bob Seger, where to come from. It's very important that fans know the source. You know, to, I agree. To, to get to the to get to problem solving or to get to what means something in life, you have to get to the source. I thought you were going to say bread fan. Bread fan. That's a that's a budgie song. Love budgie. Yep. Yeah. Good shit. Love when they open with it. There was one recently. Oh yeah, when I was watching Devin Allman and the Allman Brothers doing uh, doing uh, uh, dreams I've never dreams I've never seen. And I'm saying, God, this is. But this is a Molly Hatchet song, right? And and my buddy goes, it was a it's an Allman Brothers. I go. But I know it from Molly Hatchet. But it's a Molly I mean, song. But it's it's it, they they took ownership of it. See, that's what happens is sometimes that's when you know you've created a good cover, kind of like Jimi Hendrix did with All Along the Watchtower. Ex- yeah. yeah, but you know Bob Dylan's version is great, but it doesn't touch oh, it Hendrix's. No, not but even close. Jeff, even you close. and I talk all the time that "Turn the Page" is now Metallica's song. See? Yeah, you know, it kind of it kind of has it's, turned into it's gotten it, to that level. Even though I love Seeger's, I oh, love yeah. the original version. I won't ever take away from Seeger's version, but it's just it's kind of become that Metallica's kind of the the household name when it comes to that song. Just like Jimmy with with Watchtower, it's yeah, just one of those things. You know, or Van Halen with "You Really Got Me." When you put uh, that, I mean, that's an iconic Kink song from the '60s. It's mm-hmm. it's considered maybe the first metal riff 
and it was in Ray Davies and Dave Davies did it in the in the mid 60s. So when you come out on your first album uh, uh, with this guitar player from Mars, <laughs> then I think a lot of the population went, oh, that's a Van Halen song. They never even, unless you know mystery, you, you got to go back and say, no, that's a kink song. But it's it's great for the kinks. It's great for Van Halen. It, 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 great for everyone. It's kind of a win-win situation. It, it is when when you do it right. Yes, when you do it right. And I'll have to admit, Anarchy in the UK for the longest time, I seriously thought was Motley Crue. <laughs> well, you're decade too young to be. A, you're too young to be a Sex Pistols fan. That's what it was, Lon. But I listened to that Decade of Decadence, and it's one of the last tracks on the record. And you know, when I'm a teenager, I'm like, oh, this is the Crew, and my brother's like. Dude, you're so lost. Actually. You know, the, you, you, you know, those are my liner notes. I'm familiar with them, yes. Love it. This is a funny story. Um, my phone rings at the magazine, and it's Tommy and Nikki, and they go, Lon, what are you doing? I said, I'm running a magazine. He goes, we're in trouble. The record company sent us over <laughs> these liner notes for the, for the decade of decades, and they suck. <laughs> we want you to write them. I said, that's how that went down, huh? I go, how long do I have? He goes, uh, an hour. I said, <laughs> okay, sir. I hung up the phone. I shut the door. I, I just cranked up the record. Wow. I wrote out, I wrote out one paragraph. I faxed it over. Yep. I swear this it, 20 minutes later. No shit. They're, they call me. The two of them are screaming. Fuck. Yeah. They're screaming <laughs> on the phone. Lord fucking friend. Those are the liner notes, and that's that's what we wanted, baby. That's how that happened. That's awesome. <laughs> I knew they were your notes, and as a kid, that was one of my first oh. Molly records. But between Anarchy and uh, what was the other one they added on there, Primal Scream, I thought Anarchy was their song, and still to this day, when I hear it, I'm like, that's the crew, but yeah, it's not. I'm I've I'm very fond of, over the years. I've grown very fond of Primal Scream. I like the groove to Primal Scream. Oh, powerful. I think it's a terrific song so powerful probably a top five motley song in my opinion yeah so yeah but, but i i i kind of didn't really answer your question but i sort of did well you kind of acted like a politician and dodged the whole thing and and i fucking yeah. hate, and i hate politics so <laughs> you never see it on my social media because there's it's a no-win situation we'll just put you down as a as a lulu answer then you could, yeah, you could see there was a. It has a. It has a Lulu uh, connection, and okay. that's it. Yeah, we're cool. With that's that. close enough. We're cool. But with I'm. Uh, but I'm also. Lulu Lon. I don't have like Eddie Trunk's head where he has like a 
discography of every rock record in his brain because his brain is like that. I just could talk about kind of about things that I experience in my life uh, uh, more that than than to access minutia and data the way the way he does it. For instance, I did. I did That's a cover. We're talking to you, not Eddie. We don't need data. <laughs> we need that Jägermeister story, you know, driving 200 miles an hour through Phoenix. <laughs> I did a cover story for Metal Edge in 2008, which I'll send you guys because uh, few, I guess, few people really saw it because it was like transitioning where Metal Edge was under the banner of Relics magazine, and I and I've been writing. I wrote over about a year. I wrote a column for Relics. Uh, back then, uh, did a lot of good stuff. I had this thing called Soapbox. I wrote about Citizen Cope and about Cheryl Crow and the, and the Rolling Stones shine a light. I was at the, I was at the concert where that was filmed. Oh, cool! The night Ahmet Erdogan fell and hit his head backstage and never recovered. So there's history. That was in New York City. Yeah. Then you, uh, Beacon Theater, I think it was. And I was sitting behind Keith Richards' daughter. You know, here's a, this is a this is a good one. Um, the uh, Metallica's they they've been out of the they've been out of the performing mode for a while post some kind of monster, and okay. the Stones are playing in San Francisco backyard. So the Stones invite Metallica to open the show. We remember. It's the afterword to my to Planet Rock because I was there and I was walking around with Michael Cole, who was the promoter that did all the Stones tours between Steel Wheels and through Bigger Bang. <clears throat> so I'm just like there early and I'm hanging and and me and Kirk are standing at the bottom of this kind of ramp, uh, and we're just talking and catching up and stuff, and Mick just strolls right up and he says to Kirk have a good show man and Kirk looks at me and he looks at Mick he goes thanks and he walks away and and Kirk goes that was fucking cool <laughs> like I can only imagine yeah like I don't think he had ever come face to face up until that moment with sure. Mick Jagger. And sure. for him to come up to him, I'd go walk out of his way backstage and, and say, have a good set. Sure. Yeah, that was fun. And Kirk said... That, that's saying something when Kirk is the one that's starstruck. Oh, when shit. He's going, Whoa. Kirk is totally <laughs> started, it totally starstruck. And it was so genuine, too, because we were giggling. I mean, I end up later in that afternoon uh with Tom Waits and sitting with Steve Perry in the lunchroom and talking about it. And John Barrick was a manager of journey. And he's saying, yeah, Steve, Steve can't, he can't hit the notes anymore. Then he's mm-hmm. left the band, but that's me relationship wandering, you know, fly on the wall, capturing this. And that's what I tried to bring to that part of the end of planet rock was, it was after my divorce, and I was at a really great show. And um, I was in San Francisco, which is Metallica's home. And they were just kind of like warming up again. They were getting their chops back. Back in the groove. In front of the arguably the greatest band in the history of rock and roll. And it was such a fun night. It was, 
it was a really fun night. I believe that show, Jeff, if you can believe this, I believe they opened the show with Orion. I don't remember. I remember when that show got announced. And... It was that candlestick, which was called like 3Com at the time. It was called... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was called uh, something com, Qualcomm or... I think it was 3Com, but I think com. they actually opened the show with Orion. I'm like... Yeah, it's easy enough to check because all the knowledge of the universe is right there Tell me there that would be phone. fucking shocking to hear. Yeah. Right. Like, ecstasy know, of and... gold comes to an end and into the drumbeat of Orion. <laughs> Come on. I know where my stuff started. It started with Rip in 87 because I, I did not... I wasn't a heavy metal kid. I grew up on the Beatles and Genesis and Pink nice. Floyd and, and Elton John and and um, there was so, I mean the Doors. There was just so much music that I that I love. But when I took over Rip, I just became immersed in this heavy music. Now I did. I will confess this. I I I joined the Columbia Record Club when I was about fourteen, and I got ten albums for a dime. Deal. What one of those records was Black Sabbath's Paranoid? I got Black Sabbath's Paranoid, and and then I, I remember James Taylor. Something tells us that album changed things. Morrison Hotel was in that bunch. And then, you know, the Columbia Record Club was, wow, all these records for a dime. And then you have to buy a record a month for the next year. And they're like $10 every record. (laughs) Right. 40 years ago. 50 years ago. Sorry, I was trying to help you out, Lon. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. An hour worth of stories, Lon, that none of us have ever heard before. We appreciate it more than you know. Oh, I don't know if he, some of them maybe I've told elsewhere, but some some I tell in private. And oh, those are great. Well, we do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Man, it's... Classic albums, year and a half, uh, the Behind the Music VH1, all memorable quotes from Milan. 100%. Especially when you said Metallica was playing arenas before MTV even heard of them. <laughs> Was that a close impersonation, or was I way off? By the time they began making radio singles and music videos, they had already carved out a powerful place in heavy metal history. They were playing arenas before MTV even heard of them. If I could just tell fans, when you think about the time you're living in now, especially young people, you have access to the greatest vault of music in the history of mankind at the tip of your fingers. Mm -hmm. So never say... I'm born at the wrong time. I wish I would have been there. You got to see Guns N' Roses in the clubs. And and I say, you could see, you could experience all that. There's so much good music being created now. There's so many bands that are inspired by these great acts. Hey, true, true. Greta Van Fleet held their own in that stadium. They were, that kid's got nothing to be ashamed of. He could sing his ass off. Yes. And that they were... What's their beginnings? Suburb of Detroit, playing just shitty places. And then they write a couple songs, and there's a, someone just finds them and gets a tape to this or a disc to this person, and there they are. There they are, opening for Metallica. I mean, it, did, it didn't take that. It took, what, a few years? Not that long. What was it, Jeff, five years? 
they they blew up within the last Four, three for sure. I um I saw them. I I do I do some writing for a website in Chicago called Be in the Loop, and I love the editor James Curry because he just lets me do whatever. And I usually have it all about when I go to Chicago. My family's from Chicago, so I like to go to Chicago. <clears throat> I saw Foo Fighters on my birthday with my daughter at Wrigley Field three oh, years cool. ago. Oh, one nice. of the, That's so oh, cool. Oh, dude. That'd Foo Fighters at Wrigley show. Field. It, you, it was one of the greatest concerts ever. True. Believe it. And, and um, the Aragon Ballroom is one of those buildings. It's a hundred-year-old theater built by, like, the mob in the 1920s. <clears throat> and they, Greta Van Fleet played there, and I reviewed the show. I'll send you, I'll, I'll email you the links. Please. But it was, uh, what I did was I just walked around the room and I talked to people that were there, like, God, how come there's 800 people here? How, how do they know about this band? That's what always blows my mind. Sometimes I'll go, in Vegas, I'll go to the Brooklyn Bowl and there'll be a, there'll be like uh, 600 people there. Like, I don't even know. I have no idea who these who these guys are. But fans, they find their music. When I was growing up, we found it through magazines. That's how we found it. And we found it through college radio stations and like K-Rock Alternative. I mean, I discovered Supertramp from K-Rock Radio from Crime of the Century. Oh, wow. That's how I discovered. Yep. And and I just became a lifelong Supertramp fan after that. And I got to write about Roger Hodgson for Be In The Loop Chicago when he played in Chicago at the Arcata Theater. That's a, that, that's a really important piece to me because he performed the night Greg Lake died, which was December the 8th, which means it's also the night that John Lennon and Dimebag Daryl died. So all that confluence, wow. that celestial wow. confluence. So I'm in this room watching one of my truly favorite artists, Roger Hodgson, Supertramp, sing these iconic songs. And I'm just like, wait, this is a really... Because British music was my music. It was uh, first time I went to England in 1985. I just wanted to be to see the signs that had names of songs and bands on them. Sure. Can you take Can you take me to where the uh, Epping Forest sign is? That's a Genesis <laughs> song. Or, sure. or Hat, Hatfield in the North. Or there was a they were a band like Caravan or Canterbury band. Oh yeah, sure. I'll drive around and show you all those signs. Sure, because there's England. That's what I wanted to see. Muswell Hill. Can we go to Muswell Hill? That's one of my favorite Kinks records. Muswell Hill. Oh yeah, they have a lot of Indian restaurants in Muswell Hill. Take you to Muswell Hill. <laughs> you got that down, man. Almost as good as Lars. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, he Lars comes into the uh, into the. Uh, the the very late after he's you know just a couple weeks ago yeah just last last weekend and he has a yellowstone hat on and i'm i'm madly in love with beth dutton she's the greatest female character created in television in the last 100 percent and and lars i go oh my god my brother and i got I got him so he never binges because he he works too hard. He's always working. He's in the Very casino sure. business. He's sick for that. We love Yellowstone. And Lars goes, 
Yeah, my wife, she knows the creators. It's great. Oh, she knows Taylor Sheridan. It's great. Taylor Sheridan, I guess, he knows the creators. And he got the hat. I go, it doesn't matter. You're wearing the hat. He's not wearing the hat to be cool. It's just, I think the the guy who created the show gave him a hat. And that's, that's pretty fucking cool. He's like, all right, I'm, there we I'm are. wearing this hat today. That's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> I'll take that. It's such great, it's such great writing. It's because of the characters, man. It's the family. 100%. And let's face it, I think I think everything that Kevin Costner does is he's just so absolute, good. What you, okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. Favorite Kevin Costner movie? And if you don't say Ooh. Field of Dreams, I'm going to kick I'll, your ass. I was just going to uh, say it's that. It's funny. <laughs> I was just about to say Field of Dreams would probably be top two for sure. Right down the road from Jeff in Iowa. Yep. Yep. You can't. You can't. Ray Kinsella. That's I the absolutely only thing that love comes to mind right when I think of him. Ease his pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love James Earl Jones and Ray Liotta in that movie too. You know when James James Earl Jones. You know you're from the '60s, and you know you trying to hit him with the crowbar when he kidnaps him. Like that's that's a just. Everything about that movie is great. Hey, Dad, want to have a catch? I, I yeah. choke. I choke up. We're yeah, that's we're, such a we're we're baseball fans, and see, that, that that that's what makes uh, art. So it has to hit you at a heart level. The, the things that resonate now, even now, they have to hit you at a, a heart. Like, well, that song sucks. No, it's hitting. It's hitting at a heart level. It's got something going on. How could that band be that big? Because they're connecting at a heart level. And a lot of the... See, I fell madly in love with Lana Del Rey. And the piece I wrote about her at the the Aragon Ballroom is because I watched her magically relate to her fans who were kissing the hem of her dress. It's She's, to me, the, like maybe the greatest truly songwriter composer and she because she sings about absolute naked no bullshit Mm -hmm. heart fuck guys she's fucked guys they're messed her up cities she's fallen in love with streets Mm -hmm. that she've got partied on it's all naked it's all out there yeah it's it's there raw and real do you know she does a cover she did this for uh um for uh, Guillermo del Toro, she she did a cover of "Season of the Witch," one of my favorite Donovan songs. It's hypnotizing. Just YouTube it. It's it's so good. It's in one of his films. I love Del Toro. Did you see the uh, the his latest Nightmare Alley? Whew. No, I had, I was I have not seen that yet. But it's I am great. a big fan of. I definitely got to see it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. See how eclectic we've gotten? Like uh, we topics that branch off. We've talked of? about Lon. We've barely even talked about Metallica. We love it because Metallica is the sun, Connects and all everything. and all the other th- planets revolve around it. It's, it's really funny you say that because that's how that's how the show kind of has been. Where it's Absolutely. like you know, it's obviously you know very Metallica based, but we've had so many episodes where we're like, we come on, we kind of share you know the Metallica story, share your experiences, but then it always branches out into you know, well, I, you know, I discovered this or I'm into this, and it it just seems like Metallica is that band where you know without 
even trying necessarily. They just like they bring people together into a community. Okay, I'm going to ask you a trivia question. This this will be where we leave off because it's Vegas based. Jump in the fire, brought to you by Lawn Friend. Elton Elton John did his million dollar piano residency at Caesar's Palace for about eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. A lot of shows. <clears throat> and he had in all those performances, and I saw about 15 of them because my friend DC Parmit, who's his accountant, tour accountant, and man tour manager, and he just is a total rip Metallica guy. And he he's in my second book, Sweet Demotion. But he hooked me up. We'd sit in production and 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 I got to know Elton's band and stuff, which is nice. so cool. One, one time in all those shows over all those years, Elton had a guest player on stage once. Who was it? Holy shit. Wow, that's oh yeah I, I i'm gonna go with hetfield it's kirk hammett me and, and me and dc who were always on a text and we kind of planted the seed. dc planted wow. the seed with elton and and i just worked it from my own kind of thing and then me and kirk when he did his uh his fear fest a few years ago in san francisco Yep. We just all of a sudden out of nowhere got into this rap about Tumbleweed Connection. And I said, wait a minute, you getting into El Nino's? Oh man, I'm just discovering some of this shit. I said, I had that record when I was 15 when it came out. <laughs> Tumbleweed Connection is a top 10 all time album for me. And Madman Across the Water. So he got, he's such a developing interest. So a few years ago, I never knew uh, this. We put this together. And, uh, and the one night at the end of the show, Elton does Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. And he brings Kirk out on stage. He introduces him. That's a very appropriate song to have Kirk. And, he, and Kirk and Kirk's shredding Saturday Night's All Right. Right next to Davey Johnstone, who's been Elton's guitarist for 40 years. Perfect. Yeah, and that was that was special. And I'm telling you the truth. He's the only one. And and plus in there was another years. there's another incredible moment just to show how we cross genres and how with all this stuff is fits together in the love of music if you watch the Howard Stern interview with James and Lars and Miley Cyrus and um the most recent one there's a point in oh. the interview where uh El- 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 Elton where Elton where Elton says uh he 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 makes a statement about nothing else matters as being one of the finest ballads. James gets a little teared up then. This the camera's on James, and James is he's miss he's getting misty because he can't. Absolutely. He's that kind of a guy. He's like, I can't believe Elton John just said that. And it's it's so genuine, dude. It's not put on. It's that's so like genuine. James telling me that one of the songs I wrote was right. one of the greatest songs ever written. Like I think I would be the same way. I'd be like, "That's tough." Hold on, I yeah. need a minute. Just to digest that and I swallow mean, that, especially during an interview, that'd be tough. Right, and you know when you have someone as legendary as Elton John, I mean, it, oh my god, Billy Joel. You know, I mean, like it doesn't get much bigger than someone like Elton, and, and that's just to see Billy Joel in the same stadium the night. I've never done. By the way, I've been back going to, to concerts. 
this year is 50 years I've been going to concerts. My first concert was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Four Way Street, The Four. Wow. 1970, cool. oh. 1972, I was 16. Fucking cool on. First concert, Deja Vu record. And um, 50 years later, it's the first time I've ever been in a stadium two nights, the same stadium yeah. two nights in a row. But when they announced these, I said, oh, yeah. I, I'm, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I know I'm at Metallica is in the same league as Billy Joel. Now <laughs> I, I saw Billy Joel. I saw Billy Joel's turnstiles towards Santa Monica civic in 1976. My brother and I had second row. Nice. Billy, Billy in his own world is as good as Metallica is in their world. Cause yes. he's, 100%. he's up in age. He's yes. playing his ass off. He has a fantastic band. And I'll tell you, he played three, almost three hours. He could have played another two hours. I'd have been happy. Every single song. And then every people are singing piano man. And they're singing scenes from an Italian restaurant. And these songs are the fabric of my life. I mean, now, granted I stopped kind of probably after, I don't know. I mean, maybe 30 years ago, I stopped buying the records. I don't know. But those first, the 70s and the 80s are just like all that stuff. I saw them many, many times, but I hadn't seen them in a couple of decades. And it was it was so good. That's when I, that's when I did the OEO in the parking lot. Loved it, man. What was your favorite part of the Metallica show at Allegiant Lawn? It was a pretty, you know, greatest hit set list, but what was the highlight yeah, but for I you? Thought, I thought one was exceptionally strong. Right I thought James's performance of one was it, it just like a notch. He, they all, he always kills it. And, and that's my favorite. That's still my favorite Kirk Hammett solo. It's, it's kind of like Martin Barre's uh, Aqualung solo. I, it's a, <laughs> it's an iconic solo. It's a good comparison. He was, <clears throat> they were all the guys were, they were just so tight. It's a good show. Sounded great. And 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 it's and in a stadium, it's mm-hmm. just it's hard to be tight because mm-hmm, the atmosphere is so it's so grand and shit. But it was and Shane, I think James even brought out the Bigsby for that show just for you. Uh, he played the Gibson Bigsby on Rome and Creeping Death. Mm-hmm. I, I saw some video footage of that, and I was like, ooh. Well, it's like Shane was not definitely a, excited about that. He probably took your phone out, took some pictures. Not a fan, <laughs> but they opened. They opened with Whiplash. That's right, man. It's an interesting song to to open up with, especially now that they use a tape too. Whiplash, Dick Rash, the nineteen ninety Rip Party, where Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and Sebastian Bach were all on stage after Ozzy yes. had played War Pigs with Faith, with Faith No More. That was the encore at that party. Good old Whiplash. And, and the, the band, pl- I mean, they, pl- the, Axel and Sebastian, yep. and and Slash and Lars are doing Whiplash, doing Whiplash, and then they finish Whiplash, and it's like one thirty in the morning, and the place there's only about the the Hollywood Palladium held four thirty five hundred to four thousand. There were maybe a thousand. Because a lot of people, it was just too late. They left. The, I did. I wasn't allowed to announce this special jam that I helped put together. We called it the Gack Jam. That was the name, Gack, <laughs> which, which was a euphemism for cocaine back in those right. days. So I said, "Here they are, Gack." And then the people up front are like, "What?" what Lars comes out. Slash doing? comes out. Axel comes out. Sebastian comes out. Duff comes out, and they're 
they just start doing each other's song, Peace of Me, Guns Does, Sebastian wow. Sings Crazy, and then then they do Whiplash. And that's the point in it where there's a guy with a wearing a flannel shirt standing at the side of the stage, and he decides, no, I'm going to get on stage. So Hetfield gets on stage. He walks up to the mic, and he says, okay, I'm going to do Whiplash now. That other guy fucked it up. <laughs> Move over, fucker. It's my turn. And then it they sounds did, like Hetfield. And then they did it again, and it, they tore the place down. One, two, four, three, two and a half. That's a brutal song. That's brutal. But a great opener. We've we've talked about it immensely the last six months. Yeah, it's a great opener. Jeff, you got anything else for uh, Mr. Friend? This has been awesome, Lon. Guys, we went an hour and a half. Can That's you believe it? Anybody's had me on any kind of an interview. And I lied to you, Lon. I said no more than 45 minutes. I totally tricked you. Okay. Well, just be <laughs> kind with the edits. There's not much to edit out. We're going to have a great time with this one. I, I don't think I threw anybody under the bus. I think. No, no. You were very respectful. We even we even tried to get you to to pick a song. And, and I would. You were si- <laughs> and you were still respectful with that. But you know what? We got close to an answer. And All we'll we need. Accept it. We'll accept I, it. I, yeah, I negotiated my way out of, the, out of the darkness. Very, very well played. Lon, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Uh, I, pre- I really enjoyed this, guys. And, Good. Um, it's, it's, your vigilance got me here because uh, you, you, it's impressive when you just don't give up. We knew we'd have fun and knew you'd have great behind-the-scenes shit we've never heard. And Okay, man. Thanks again. Appreciate it, Lon. Thanks a lot, fellas.